0: It's time for Series 3 of Shooting the Breeze. As we continue our focus on women's basketball, we'll be talking to more of the amazing players in the WNBL, the coaches that inspire them, those people behind the scenes that do so much for the sport, as well as so many more from across the Australian women's basketball landscape and beyond. It's the 42nd WNBL season, the longest-running women's professional league in the country, and this year... 2022, Sydney will stage the FIBA Women's World Cup featuring the 12 best women's teams on the planet playing right here on our turf. There's so much to come in this season. Subscribe, like and review our podcast so we can get more Hoops content to you. We want to welcome on board the Island Pacific Soap Company as our first commercial partner they make high-quality, all-natural, handcrafted bath soap. Check them out online, and a big shout-out to Paul for all the support. In this episode, we take a ride with Kaz and Daz from the Kaz and Daz podcast, featuring the best of British basketball. Their podcast was born out of a pandemic and spotlights the amazing talent in British women's hoops. Based from their respective homes, Calling games for the Manchester Mystics and the London Lions, we start to appreciate how much we have in common in our quest to grow women's hoops. Sit back and enjoy an epic pod. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining Jacinta Govind and myself today, it's Kaz and Daz from the UK, from the Kaz and Daz Show, a podcast all about women's hoops in the UK, and we're going to get into all things WBBL. And... Really find out what's happening over there, and we promise we're not going to talk about the Ashes. Well, too much anyway. <laughs> <laughs> guys, thanks for joining us. Okay, starting off, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown on your show and what you guys do in your background so our listeners can get an idea of what's happening in the UK basketball scene and how you're approaching it?
1: Firstly, hi, I'm Dallas. Thank you so much for having us on. It really, really uh, appreciate the opportunity. what to you guys. We've been, all throughout the lockdown, doing a podcast about... Now, we started off doing about the WNBA over in America. And then at the end of that season, Kaz and I, who we've never met in person. We've been in the same building one time, but we've never actually (laughs) physically met and interacted. We had so much fun working together as part of a wider team, where we continued the Kaz and I show. And this became uh, looking at women's basketball in the WBBL, which is our top tier in WNBL. Uh, which is our uh, England's top tier and uh, more generally around the world. Like Kaz will be able to tell you more about her stat line of the week. But that's that's how it started for us. We're both commentators within the WBBL. I also work in the men's side of basketball as well. This season it's changed a little bit because of circumstance, but we take uh, a real holistic view on women's basketball across the country and across the world.
0: It sounds like you guys have got an interesting dynamic. I'm surprised that you guys actually haven't met face-to-face yet.
2: Yeah it, it it's crazy I've met one of uh, Darren's very good friends in person before he's had the chance to meet me as well which was quite a Quite an amusing story. But no, it's been great. I guess we were kind of put in touch by a mutual friend, weren't we? Adam Masters that does has a clothing company up here in Manchester, where I'm based, um, and he does a commentary with me for the Manchester Mystics Games in the WBBL. And we also do commentary for the, the men's Division 1, which is NBL, Division 2 um, over here. So through a mutual friend, we've kind of got to got to share our love of women's basketball and just chat about it on a a weekly basis all through lockdown, which has been great. It was great for me. It was a great thing to pass the time as well.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that was going to be my follow up question. If you haven't met in person, how did you meet to be able to start a podcast together? But it makes sense if it's through a mutual commentator friend, I I suppose. But Kaz, if you're located in Manchester, where are you, Daz?
1: Uh, well, I'm coming to you now from sunny North Wales, uh, the beautiful town of Colwyn Bay, where I'm from. But uh, I'm based down in Cambridge. So just a short train journey outside of London. I commentate for the London Lions men and women's programmes, as well as in uh, Cambridge for Anglia Ruskin University in the south of England, or east, I suppose we call it.
2: Darren, you've put the feelers out a little bit, hadn't you? Saying you wanted to do something with, with women's basketball. And I think Adam was like, oh, Kaz would be pretty interested in that. And we kind of... Got together with a couple of other other coaches and players through that as well.
1: Yeah. So I've been doing, you know, the podcasting thing, you know, set up a couple of websites over the years because the only thing I've ever wanted to do is be involved in sports and I love basketball and it just seemed like a good fit. And saw an opportunity to work within the WNBA and report on that, cover that in more detail than I ever have done before. Spoke to a couple of people that I know and trust and, you know, Kaz's name came forward. So got her in the group chat and, and it's been a, fantastic partnership ever since I think
2: definitely and we're hoping 2022 is the year that we are actually going to meet in person that's our goal
0: (laughs) (laughs) so guys a couple of things for me number one there's a lot of basketball going on in the UK and strangely enough we don't hear a lot about anything that happens with basketball in the UK Similarly, we were talking to a guy from New Zealand, Bevan Murray, who's involved in women's basketball there. We also don't hear a lot about New Zealand basketball. So it's interesting that a much larger nation with obviously a whole lot more basketball going on, we're still not hearing anything. And it's kind of weird because generally Australia versus UK in anything would be huge news. How come we're not hearing about you guys? (laughs)
2: I think in this country, it just doesn't get the media exposure within this country itself, um, which then makes it very difficult for it to kind of spread out further to other countries to hear about it. A lot of people are generally surprised when we talk about British basketball, when you talk to people overseas or friends that you know in other countries, that we even have, well, one, a league, two women's leagues, men's leagues, and that we have so many divisions of them as well. Because I just think the UK isn't generally known as a, a basketball country, but Basketball here is the second highest participation sport in the country, isn't it, Down behind football. Um, so we have huge amounts of youth players, so many different things going on, um, and it just doesn't seem to translate into media coverage. I think you have to be kind of involved in it to be aware of it, and that's probably one of the the areas that really needs a lot of development to be able to to spread the word about basketball, because everyone that I take to a game and bring to a game who will watch it for the first time, they're like, this is this is super exciting. The talent and the quality of these players is, is amazing. And they come back and they want to come back and see it, but they just don't know it's there. And I think that's probably why it's, it's not reached you guys yet or any further.
1: Yeah, I mean, internally within the country, it's almost a struggle to get that consistent coverage of the game within our own country, let alone going overseas now. Obviously, Australia, UK, that's a pretty natural link. They're far away, same language, you know, such a no-brainer. But, like, lack of consistent TV, even with the men's top-tier league, it's bounced around all these different channels and networks and pay and free and all of these things and the women's side of things. Occasionally, we're getting the Friday, Friday BBC games, and they were tipping off at 5.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. I mean, for me working man i'm barely getting done at that time so i know it's not super convenient for people so that's your marquee friday night game and it's in the afternoon so you start to see some of the issue that there has been within the uk and then getting outside of our own borders i mean that's i think that's where some of the difficulty comes from
2: and that is something that we have been trying to to push, isn't it? When with our podcast, we've been trying to showcase the league that we have here and the talent that we have here, um, just to try and get it out there so people are aware of what's going on.
1: Yeah. And so one thing that you know, a, a positive to take from the pandemic, obviously, is horrendous. There are very few, but one of the the strides taken forward in the game in this country was every club had to step up immensely in terms of their presentation of their game, so people could watch it. So streaming became a much more regular thing. When I started doing the streaming with Anglia Ruskin, who are like a Division 1 team, let's say, well, they are, <laughs> it was just audio only, and then it was like Facebook stream, so it wasn't amazing quality. And then all of a sudden, pandemic, everything got better in terms of being able to watch every single game that was happening, which made things a lot easier. And then this year, we've seen a little bit of a regression in that, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Some teams have been able to maintain that, other teams have not been able to sustain that. And that's a real shame. Again, for me, I think that needs to come from above a little bit to you know support the teams to ensure that we can still get the games out to people. And Just give them away for free. They're, most of them are available on YouTube, as it should be, in my opinion, because you want everybody to get eyes on the product. You do that within the country. Marquee Games are now on Sky Sports, which is a pay channel. I think it's equivalent to Fox Sports in Australia, which is great. And they're given away for free on YouTube as well. So you're getting that Sky presentation, which is amazing that like you see them work on match day. It's phenomenal. But um, getting that presentation, the Razzmatazz, and it's free. I mean, that's, that's going to be a benefit, building it internally within the country. And people like Kaz and myself and Ads, uh, Mikey, Greg, all those people, that if they hear this, they'll know who they are, who are doing really good work to promote the women's game, but it needs to happen at a higher, more consistent level. Internally, and then that can translate externally.
0: There's a couple of things in that that really interested me. First of all, Sky Sports are putting it out there for free, which is really interesting because Fox Sports Australia has an, a streaming offshoot called KO, and what they're doing is they're picking select games which they're putting out for free on their KO freebies, but also a lot of games are behind a paywall. It's a bit of an issue for me because I get you want to have a broadcaster to support you, but the moment you get behind a paywall, or certainly in Australia, there is a very small percentage of the population that's actually paying to watch. I think the number's still under 15% of the total population, and out of that 15%, there's an even smaller population that's watching women's basketball, let's say. So while it's great to have it out there, for us, one of the issues is the reach but it sounds like Sky Sports have taken a different approach and said, right, well, it's behind the paywall, but also free.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's absolutely what they've done. Uh, They put it out on YouTube. I think it's on one of the free Sky channels. I think it's Sky Arena. Um, Now, I don't have Sky. I don't pay for Sky myself, so I'm not so much of an expert on that. But, yeah, and why you'd – and it's the same for the men's games. I believe that all the, the BBL games that they take, so they take men and, like, the finals for the women, and they put them out. And they don't put it behind a paywall because why would you? But the rest of the women's games, it's just clubs, you know, managing the best they can. So you know, Kaz and Ad's doing what they're doing up in Manchester. Uh, we've got a great production team that work on our games up in London. When they're in the Copper Box, slightly different setup. When they play at their second venue in Barken Abbey.
0: So why are they playing in different venues? Is it just a scheduling thing, or are they just trying to reach different segments of the population?
1: For the Lions, when there's a, a men's and women's double header. They'll play both games in the Copper Box Arena, which is this Olympic venue. When it's not, they'll have uh, the game in Barking Abbey because that's where the availability is. So they're always able to get that venue if they need it, which is a much smaller venue. But that's always theirs because the Lions, despite being you know the biggest, one of the biggest teams in the country, in terms of women's game, I think right now, this season, the best team in the country by far, they don't own their venue. So they, they get availability when they get availability. And that's the same for the men's and the women's. For example, biggest game in their history for the women against Borges in Euro Cup. That was played at Crystal Palace, historic venue, but is a long way from their home. That's down in South London. Lions are based in uh, East London, for example.
2: And I think that's kind of a kind of common issue throughout the league, isn't it? Venue availability. I know the, the Manchester Mystics that I do the commentary for. They play out of um, the National Basketball Performance Centre where Team GB play and a couple of weekends ago there was a netball tournament that apparently had to have the centre over the basketball team so the, the basketball team had to move and find another venue that was available at a, on the same day.
0: That's not great. You've brought up netball now. So how does... <laughs> So, how do you guys find the natural competition between the two sports? We hear an awful lot about UK netball here. So, what's basketball missed?
1: <laughs> Sorry, it doesn't work in audio. Just threw my hands up and <laughs> exhaled rather dramatically. Do you know i I don't. I don't know. It's the simple for me. It's a simple answer. But, Cas, go, go ahead.
2: I was going to say, so in in my personal experience, when I was at school, I played netball. Um, When I asked if I could start a basketball team, I was told no, and I couldn't. So nobody at my school played basketball. Um, I'm a bit older than, you know, so it was quite a while ago, but nobody played basketball at school. And I think netball is seen as a traditional British sport because basketball is an American sport, isn't it? And I think sometimes people want to, yeah, (laughs) sometimes people want to, say, oh, well, we're, we're really good at this sport, we're really good at netball, we're really good at football, but we don't really want to try anything too different is sometimes the impression that I get that people aren't as open to other other sports. I don't know why netball is as popular as it is and basketball hasn't been able to kind of Follow some of the, the template that they've chosen because we have netball teams that are playing down at Manchester Arena here, which is one of the biggest arenas in the country. And it won't be sold out to the, the 20,000 plus, but it's a huge venue and they have tournaments over the weekend and things. And it really, they, they've they tapped into something and it's on the TV a lot, on BBC, on the channels. And it Sky just gets have
1: great coverage of the, the National League. Sorry, Kaz but the the Sky coverage over the Super League during the um, pandemic was absolutely phenomenal. It was better quality than what the WNBA did for their league when they were bubbled up. It was really stunning. Like, Sorry to talk over you there.
2: No, and I I think uh, it is, and that's something basketball and netball always... When basketball does something really well in this country, there always seems to be something that netball have done just a bit better, so that's what happens to get the coverage. In the 2018 Commonwealth Games, GB won silver in basketball, highest they've ever finished, amazing tournament. And all I saw of the coverage, which is a wonderful, fantastic story in itself, was Jamel Anderson proposed to his girlfriend who played for the women's team. And that was the coverage. And it was an amazing, beautiful story. But there wasn't coverage of the achievement. And I think the netball team won gold. And that was all the sporting coverage that it got. And every time GB have done something in Eurobasket qualifiers or something, the netball team seemed to just have done something slightly a bit better and the media and the coverage goes to that. It's quite frustrating, I think, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and with netball versus basketball as well. So when I went to school, I went to high school in the 2000s. Boys played basketball and football, and that's primarily it. And girls would play netball and field hockey. Oh, and of course we played rugby because, you know, Wales. So that was (laughs) it. Like If a girl wanted to throw a ball through a hoop, they'd be out there playing netball rather than having the opportunity to play basketball. That... Isn't completely universal, but it is, I think, going to be a lot of the lived experience of a lot of people. So I, I coach at the where I work. I do some coaching and way more girls play netball than what we have in basketball. We're trying to grow that. We're trying to work on that every single, every single day. Every time I see one of these kids, I'm like, basketball. I'll see you at basketball. But it's about, you know, give an opportunity to play. Again, it's a huge participation sport, probably more with males than females. And that's a balance that needs to be addressed.
3: So you both touched on like how you were both first exposed to basketball or the barriers of accessing basketball, you know, since high school. What are the pathways for players in basketball over the UK? Because over here, you know, we have our basketball clubs in the community and you play representative. So that's all outside of school. And generally, the pathways through representative sport goes to, you know, you represent the region, then you represent your state and then that kind of follows up to the WNBL or the NBL. But what are the pathways over in the UK to get to the WBBL? So a lot, not all, teams have um, an academy
2: programme. So they'll get kids in when they're around 12 and kind of have an under-12s, under-14s, under-16s, under-18s and sort of help guide them in that pathway to get into the senior WBBL team. That's something that I know the Manchester Mystics do, Nottingham, Oakland's, Seven Oaks, I think as well and Leicester certainly. Uh, but I don't know if it's something that every team have. I think it's a goal for them too. So that's the the senior club pathway. We've got the England and GB pathways as well and I think it gets a little bit more convoluted there. I don't know if you know a bit more about that than me, Darren.
1: I think that is the primary pathway of like pick it up at a school or a local club and then maybe get funneled into an academy program. Uh, we have like sixth form colleges attached to basketball. So, you're talking about Leicester riders, the WBBL team, the WNBL team attached to them are the Loughborough student riders, which is you're going to have under 16s through university and like the odd, like mid 20 year old playing for them as a view to go into their WBBL team. And below them, you've also got the academies like um, Charnwood would be the Loughborough Leicester route. So, you've got a, the ideal that they would like. Is you go to their like sixth form college from like 16 to 18, 19, then maybe onto their university. Or if you're particularly good, like Holly Winsbury was go to America and go to a top flight university there and or go through and play with their WBBL program. So the pathways are, are there. They're becoming much more uh, formalized. I think that's been a lot of talk from the league over the last couple of years, but generally I think that's how it works. And then you have the representation for playing for your region or your county and then playing. The youth levels for England up to 16 and then GB upwards.
3: And so is there a big university league happening over there as well that sits under
1: the WBBL? Yeah the Bucks League I don't know if we'd call it big but it is there and it is there for you know people who walk into a university and be like I fancy playing basketball and they might be able to get onto their basketball team whereas other schools recruit for basketball specifically so come to our like Loughborough Anglia Ruskin is a good example Uh, come here play basketball play for our national league team in the case of Leicester play for our WBBL team and play for our Bucks team so you're getting more exposure to playing basketball in an organized setting to a decent quality there's no coverage of Bucks zero coverage of Bucks I will go and watch Bucks games for fun when I have chance but that's literally it you might see the Bucks organization so it's the British University Colleges Sport—I think that's what it stands for. They will send out their end-of-year results for sports, but it's across like every sport that gets played in college or universities.
0: It sounds like there's a lot of pathways, and it sounds like I don't know. There's a lack of coordination between those pathways in some respects because it's almost like somebody needs to grab this and try and funnel it into a more structured pathway. Because, I mean, you know, you want to be able to get the kids early who like basketball and want to be able to play for GB and then know that, okay, if I follow this pathway, I've got a chance to be able to get into a WBBL team or take a side path to college and then come back and be able to represent my country at World Cup, Com Games, Olympics. Am I reading that right or have I missed something in that?
2: I was just going to say, I think you've, I'd agree with that, yeah. (laughs) I think you've hit the nail on the head.
1: Yeah, I I think that's fair. I think there is work being done in different regions of England in particular to try and help streamline that process. But yeah, I don't know how clear it would be to a young player who wants to get involved in the game. Also, and I I could be off base, but I feel like basketball for girls in this country and for, for boys in this country is a game you start playing in secondary school. It feels like a high school sport. It doesn't feel like a primary school sport, which is up to the age of 11 that's just my lived experience and what I observe and perceive there's a few kids come through earlier and play and I know people are trying to work on that for example Matt Harbour who coaches Angular Rescue Man is in charge of the whole program he set up a, a company aimed at basketball for the age of two he's kicking off two-year-olds playing basketball is going to be unreal up to the age of 11, and then let them go from there. Mini ballers and stuff like this. But I don't know how obvious that would be for a seven-year-old who, like, oh, this basketball seems great. How do I want to play for GB or whatever?
0: It sounds to me like getting the kids in early, particularly given the lack of media coverage, means that there's a bit of an uphill battle. The idea of starting a program to be able to get kids from a young age sounds, sounds like a great first step. But I'm really confused because... To me, with the population that the UK has in comparison to, say, Australia, percentage-wise, the UK should be able to field an awful lot of good basketball players. Where are these kids getting funneled off to? Europe football?
3: Europe, states, football, yeah. Okay. As long as you didn't say cricket, that's okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not too sure how many dual coders we have between those two. So, uh, Catherine Hulme, who is, you know, one of the top players in the English in the WNBL, uh, probably on course for MVP this year, possibly. She will certainly tell you about her career as as a junior cricketer. Talk about, you know, girls and women's involvement in sport. There was a funny rule in where she played cricket growing up in the Cambridgeshire region where girls could play two age groups down if they were playing in boys' competitions. So, let's say she's 15 years old. I think she's already six foot by this point, and she's playing against thirteen-year-old boys. So she's out there at the crease <laughs> smashing these these children about the place. Just carting him. I'm sure it was fun for her, but I don't know how that builds yeah. participation necessarily. But that's a fun little rule, I guess.
0: Are you planning on shipping her out for the remaining few tests of the ashes? We need it. We need it. <laughs>
3: It's, uh, I, I think as well, based on what uh, you've both talked about already, uh, for me maybe because I'm, uh, I wouldn't say sensitive to it, but I uh, pick it up kind of easy, lots of challenges upon the traditional gender norms of uh, this is a women's sport, this is a men's sport, this is what women should be participating in, this is what age that they're allowed to be participating in. Lots of those things popping up, like you said before, Kaz, you know, the whole uh, focus on netball and having netball more accessible for uh, young girls, you know, through school and stuff. And typically I even see it over here in Australia that netball is seen as the more feminine sport than basketball and therefore it's more ladylike and more appropriate for young girls to start participating in. Um, So I wonder if a lot of those underlying traditional gender constructs are still uh, perhaps unconsciously informing some decisions about how accessible basketball is or the pathways or why, like Paul said, you have such a, the population density translating into participation and media coverage doesn't add up.
2: Yeah, I think it definitely does. And we also have the problem, I imagine this is a worldwide problem, of girls when they hit, you know, teenage years, they stop playing sport because they're either, embarrassed of their body they don't want to sweat or they don't want to look bad in front of boys or their friends or their peers or other girls and we've got a lot of campaigns at the moment through just um, a lot of all girls sport and the England basketball campaign that they're doing to get girls and teenage girls involved and sticking to sport and to not lose the progress that they make when they're younger and then maybe just drop a sport um, so there's a lot of campaigns around that, and a lot of you know encouragement adverts that we've got sort of on TV in between games and things to try and keep people in the sport. But, but it definitely is because it's something that you know you you mention women's basketball to people here and they say, oh, you mean netball? It's just a, a sudden assumption. If I say I play basketball, like oh yeah, netball. Like, I've just said basketball. <laughs> it's it's not netball, but I, it definitely plays into it. And women's sport is getting more coverage as we're you know slowly slowly getting there uh, women's football here has been had quite a a boost in the last few years but it just seems as a whole it's behind and until it's kind of given the you know the equal coverage and i don't mean i don't want to get too far into it but the the pay and the conditions and things that players are going through women can't take it as a professional job in some sports because the pay is just not there if you have to support yourself with a, a part-time job as well as being a professional football player professional basketball player you can never excel to your absolute peak if you can't spend that time training. And I think there's just so much, it's a worldwide problem and it's something that needs to be caught up, but it's definitely still a lot of archaic gender structures in place.
3: Yeah, in the WMBL, I think two years ago, uh, agreed to um, increase the salary for the development players, at least for each team, uh, has to be a, a particular base salary. So For some context, so uh, I also went to school during the 90s and 2000s. So I only finished school in 2003. So I went through and got into basketball early 90s. I was lucky I was introduced to basketball during primary school. So I started a lot earlier. Um, But by the time I played one season of WNBL, 2007, 2008, as a development player, My kind of payment was that I got a pair of shoes. That was was all at the time. You know, I still had uniforms and all that stuff covered. The times I went on a couple of road trips, obviously that was covered. But when I compared myself to a development play in an NBL team, they were getting 30K and I got a new pair of shoes covered. So that was kind of the... Yeah, that was a massive difference. So I know that the WNBL are trying to make strides to make sure that the, at least the development players are paid a bit better so they can make it their their life's work, as you were talking about. But interestingly, uh, a player from the Melbourne Boomers, who's name Rachel Brewster, has just done an article saying exactly what you said, Kaz, the balance of being a professional female athlete and still having to do a full-time job. And I think the story for me... I mean, it's a story that's been told before. So not to invalidate the story, but it's an important story to keep telling. But for me, having played 2007, and that was still the story for our highest paid players then, and for it to still be the story now, it's uh, it's getting a bit tiresome. Yeah. (laughs) In in a sense that something needs to change.
2: Yeah, we need to make some progress. I mean, we had we had a player last season for Manchester. Uh, she was a social worker as her day job. She commuted from Sheffield to Manchester, which is probably an hour hour and a half drive to come to practice. And she was a a new mom. Uh, her baby was born during lockdown. And how she balanced the three, I I, I don't know. You would see her halftime on court looking after her baby, and then just going back to play, and then she'd go to work. It's incredible to see. And yeah, how she juggled all of that on top of. Playing one of her best seasons, actually. She's been in the league a long time and she was, you know, she was still producing. It's incredible to see.
3: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I was already like, wow, the commute. And then he said, oh, and then he threw in a baby in there. And I was like, geez. <laughs> 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 that's some superhuman powers. It, it is. It is.
0: <laughs> Following on on this. Do you guys in your top league, do you have a salary cap that's applied to the teams?
2: I'd love to be able to tell you. We were talking about this. The the information on that isn't there or that I've seen. I don't know if you have, Darren. It's not not something that's spoken about or mentioned.
1: No. The transparency of uh, the financials with women's basketball in this country are (laughs) we don't know. We don't know. Based on the fact that there is a salary cap in the men's league, We can reasonably assume that there is, but I don't know. And I don't know if that's really ever been an issue or something to be really discussed with the nature of how women's basketball, even at the top level, is played and is dealt with. So a lot of the top players in the league will go to a team attached to a university, so they may get money, but they'll also be on a scholarship for that school and be covered for that. So you have people come over and do masters and... They'll be attached to university. They'll play. They'll do their Masters for two years. They've got that experience in Europe. They may retire. They may go play elsewhere in Europe or around the world. So there's some of the top, typically Americans, maybe Europeans, stopgap, some teams are paying and some players are not getting paid. Also, you've got the likes of Oakland where the majority of their players are like academy age or just starting university age. And again, like with yourself, Jacinta, I don't think they're going to be earning uh, much in the way of, of anything. But in terms of Is there a salary cap? Unfortunately, we do not know.
0: So let me throw this out because it's a discussion I've had with a few people. Do you think if a salary cap was introduced and it was transparent that it could actually assist in bringing in commercial sponsorship because all of a sudden you know this is the number that we're we're all working towards, now we can go and talk to potential commercial sponsors and say, right, This is our operational cost. This is our player cost. This is what we're looking for in terms of sponsorship. And then they come up with associated marketing packages because then it's a known quantity.
2: Um, Yeah, yeah, I definitely think it would. I definitely think it would help. We had a team. So last year, the Sheffield Hatters, who are the oldest team, women's basketball team in the country, they had to – pull out of playing last season because they couldn't get the sponsorship due to the the pandemic because the sponsors pulled down I believe because they were saying well you're who are we advertising to who's watching this there's no one to come to the games to see it because we couldn't have people in venues so they had to pull out because of the lack of sponsorship and I think if you were to be able to give a figure and like you say you know we're working towards this it just opens up a whole lot of new doors lots of new opportunities and kind of everyone's on a an equal footing, you know, they, they know where they stand and you can just open it up to so much more people because the sponsorships, I just think they're so key to the promotion and what the league is trying to do. But, yeah, you need to be able to give that figure so you can get there.
0: Yeah, because I kind of wonder if people look at the idea of sports sponsorship and they the first thing is their mind goes to this is too expensive for a smaller organisation to get involved in because they just have no clue what the salary pictures and the expenses around a team uh, involve and we have the same problem here right the lack of transparency in what goes on is I think a huge inhibitor to being able to attract commercial sponsors to be able to attract people and especially with basketball because whenever you hear numbers about salary thrown around to do with basketball, it's generally out of the NBA, and, you know, they're moonshot numbers. They just think basketball is a horrifically expensive sport to sponsor, and they're going to look at someone like, you know, one of the WNBL teams here in Australia or potentially WBBL in the UK and go, yeah, well, you know, we wouldn't even be able to afford to get through the door.
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. because And because the NBA just sort of infiltrates everything, doesn't it? That's the – you think basketball, you think NBA, uh, wherever you are in the world. And if that's the – the idea that those guys have in their heads, yeah, I think that, that's a really good point, actually. And to say to other sponsors, it's not—we're not asking for LeBron James money. <laughs> we want something, you know, something smaller, just something more relative um, that would help.
0: Yeah, look, we'll just be happy with the loose change that LeBron carries around in his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's a few other things about the WBBL which really has me curious. I was looking at, looking at some of the teams. Obviously, there's a university connection with some of the teams, Uh, and I'm really curious about this. How's the ownership structured for the teams in the WBBL? Are they all privately owned or are they university private? What's the predominant ownership structure?
2: It's about half and half. I'd say, I think really quickly off the top of my head, there's at least three that are university owned. Is that right? Manchester, Cardiff,
1: Leicester. Yeah, I'd say, so let's just run down the list. Cardiff definitely are. Durham definitely are. Essex definitely are. Gloucester are linked to university. There is a loose affiliation, but they're more closely linked to their local football team. Riders definitely are Leicester riders. London Lions, they have links to the universities and to the Barking Abbey Academy system. Manchester University. Newcastle, no. They're linked to the men's basketball team. Nottingham Wildcats, no. Oakland Wolves College, Seven Oaks Suns no. Sheffield Hatters, no. So, yeah, about six there, about half.
0: One of the reasons why I'm asking is, again, I'm going back to, we had a conversation recently with uh, New Zealand and they've basically turned around and scrubbed all the existing teams out of their women's league. They just went, okay, you're done. And they've put out an EOI for people to apply for the five new franchises that they're going to be setting up for their league. They've actually been pretty transparent about how they, they want to structure things. The reason I'm, I'm curious about this is, because, again, you've got a league, you've got a, a reasonable number of teams, you've also got a reasonable number of players, but how do you come up with a sustainable ownership who can then, owners typically have egos, how do you get them in a room where they can agree on a strategy to develop the league without fighting like a sack full of cats?
1: You know, each team uh, has a member on the WBR board. So the the 12, is it 12? The clubs, 13. they all, 13, sorry, they all have a member on the board and that's, that's how that, that runs and they seem, since the league's come into to existence seven years ago, it's been pretty stable. We've only had two uh, clubs come for a bit and then drop out and we've had new clubs join. So, they must be doing something relatively right in the board. But it's interesting looking at the breakdown of who the board members are. For some teams, it's their head coach. Other teams, it's, somebody higher up in their organization. And in the case of the riders, again, it's, it's Russell Evanston who is in charge of the whole riders' organization, men, women, university team, college teams as well. Sorry. I don't know if that answers your question. I don't think it does, but it's a little side note.
0: That's interesting. I suppose if I'm, I'm looking at the like our local competition, I think what you end up having is everybody, particularly where you've got private ownership, you end up having a lot of really rich guys who've, Border team, they've all got their own opinion on how everything should be run, and it's very hard to get people like that to compromise because basically they've got to where they are on the grounds of not compromising on their vision. That's why I was curious about how it operates over there, yeah. And because all you need is a is a couple of really strong-willed, very loud individuals in a room like that, and then things can get, I don't know. Heated, things can get railroaded as it becomes a matter of sheer will of trying to get an a specific outcome.
1: I think I can't claim to have been in the meetings. It turns out we have spoken to more of the board members than possibly we realised. But um, looking at the list, two names step out to me, in particular, Steph Collins, uh, who represents Cardiff, Cardiff's coach, and Betty Cadona from Sheffield Hatters, who is like this legendary force in women's basketball in this country. Kaz will be able to talk more about her. But, you know, it's it's just interesting to me that the makeup of it, it's it's a lot of coaches and it's a lot of coaches who've spent their whole lives, coaching lives, in the women's game. So I don't know how well that is going to help avoid the situation that you're talking about. I'm looking at this list. I'm not seeing a bunch of hard-blooded business people. I'm seeing people who've worked within women's basketball for most of their lives, if not, you know, their whole careers. So I don't know if that helps because again, I look at the WBL and it always plays second fiddle to the BBL, the men's competition in this country. But it, it feels just secure. Is is that fair to say, Kaz?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's very very consistent. Stable. Yeah, stable.
0: I mean, I'll throw this one over to Jacinta because One of the things that has been a bit of an issue for us in the WNBL is the financial stability of the league and also the number of clubs that have come in and dropped out over the history of the league. It's actually a pretty big number. You've been inside the league, so maybe you might be able to give us your ideas on that one.
3: Well, essentially, um, I mean, what I know is, is still kind of limited as well, like I haven't worked in a club close enough. To understand the real ins and outs of finances and things like that but definitely in the history so our WNBL uh, is the longest running women's professional league in Australia so it's been going for 42 43 years now yeah in that 40 years I mean it did start in the in Victoria so a bit of basketball history for Australia as well a lot of basketball started in Victoria Um, So Melbourne being one of the big basketball hubs. So if you ever play at a state level and you play against Vic Metro, that's the standard you're going for because Vic Metro tend to win nearly lots of the junior tournaments. Uh, But basically started there and that's where it helped spawn the WNBL back in the day. So one of the big clubs that is still one of the big clubs in Victoria is the Nunawading Spectres. As the league has developed from there, so we've got, you know, our Sydney Flames team, is that's where Paul and I ended up meeting because Paul was running the live stream for the Flames games and I randomly jumped on for the commentary. So some of those clubs like the Sydney Flames, Adelaide, Adelaide Lightning and there was a club called the Dandenong Rangers that's a Melbourne club too, but they're now uh, the Southside Flyers. They've been quite consistent and, and Townsville as well been quite consistent for at least the last couple of decades. Um, But like Paul said, a lot of clubs have come in and out and especially one that comes to mind being Logan, which is a Brisbane-based club in Queensland. Logan being a a relatively successful and big club in Brisbane from the junior levels and the semi-professional league that we now call NBL1. They entered a, a team into the WNBL and they were probably in the league about three, four years until that ended. But it's just because you need your junior, basically you need your domestic program, so domestic program being the social league where you just go and play with your friends uh, on a Tuesday night, income from those domestic comps and from your juniors to fund the seniors. And it just seems like if you have limited court space, uh, because obviously you need that to grow if it means you're going to then support a professional league, but in terms of court space and time and resources like that, I think that's, Ultimately, sometimes becomes unsustainable for a lot of clubs as well. So, that's why, probably why we've seen a lot of changes in the WNBL over its history. And Perth being another example, they started as the Perth. I'm pretty sure they were the Lynx back in the day, and then they were the West Coast Waves, and then they were something else, and now they're back to being the Lynx. So, with ownership and partnerships, they keep changing too. So, but that's just a bit of a rundown of some of the, the club history. But yeah, there were definitely lots of teams. Same with the NBL, but probably more so the WNBL where there are lots of teams that were in the comp and then out of the comp again, but doesn't sound as as stable as perhaps the WBBL.
0: Yeah, and strangely enough, one of the most stable teams that we've had here is, and I was surprised to find this out talking to the general manager for the team, is our team in Townsville. It's community-owned. Mm-hmm. It is the only community-owned team in the league yet it seems to be one of the most stable teams and just you might know here might have heard of something but i've i don't think i've ever heard of there ever being a question mark over townsville ever
3: no not to my knowledge no no so let's not jinx it either now we've said that
0: <laughs> no, no, no 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 we don't we don't want the, the the commentary curse but it's kind of it's interesting for me because there's got to be something to it this is a community owned team that's quite stable and so you've got to start asking questions about is it a possibility particularly where you've got in environments where basketball isn't the number one sport Mm. if you can get the community because there is obviously a community that's behind the sport to actually come together to somehow field a team is that a better model than the u.s you know rich guy owns a team
3: I think the kind of advantage, I guess, for Townsville is that Townsville being a more regional area and population and a good friend of mine played for Townsville for a couple of seasons and said they get such big crowds there because there really isn't anything else going on. So everyone knows to go to the basketball games because there isn't much else going on. I mean, they have the North Queensland Cowboys NRL team, you know, being the rugby league over here. I saw sort of Daz's expression when I said league, <laughs> which is also our expression. But, no.
1: um,
3: yeah, but essentially being a regional town where the whole town can kind of get behind it if there's nothing else going on. A couple of my friends also play in regional areas of Queensland and NBL1 and say the same thing. There's not much else going on. There's also big mining communities out there. So they've still got a bit of money to put towards something like that basketball is the one thing that's on and it's good, then people are going to go watch it. But, yeah, you compare that to Sydney where we're competing with uh, A-League, at least two N- NRL teams, um, obviously competing with the men's NBL as well, it, it becomes a bit trickier.
0: Yeah, I suppose one of the things that's been quite stark is both Sydney basketball teams are under common ownership. And, look, there's a qualifier because of COVID as well. The numbers of people attending the double headers for the women's game has not been as high as I expected I actually expected the numbers to be higher, but I don't know how much COVID's playing into that. Who goes so, first?
2: Which, which game's first?
0: Typically it's the women's game that's on first, the Flames, but there is one round this season where the women's game is on after the men. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But like I said, you know, it's hard to gauge because COVID kind of gets thrown into the mix. And that's a week-to-week proposition.
1: Yeah. My question to you is, what's the gap between the end of one game and the tip time in the next game?
0: Uh, For the doubleheaders, I think it's about 30 to 35 minutes. Perfect. You know, so that they, yeah, so the game finishes and it gives time just to get the, you know, whatever tidy-up needs to happen and then the men come out and start their warm-up before the game.
1: So. Yeah. At the Lions, the turnover time is two hours.
3: Oh, <laughs> hey, <Yeah>. why?
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know. I can't speak to that. But women's game will tip at twelve. Men's game will tip at four.
3: Oh, even in our uh, semi-pro leagues, uh, the times yeah, the games run basically two hours after each other. So my home yeah. club, if we had the youth league on as well, and we had everyone playing at home the one Saturday, it would be. Twelve to four, six. So you could just sit in the stadium and watch every home game and not have to go anywhere. It's, you could spend your whole day there if you wanted to. But yeah, so yeah, you don't know there. There's no kind of specified reason as to why there's a big the two hour gap between.
1: I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, thinking about the clubs that could have the double headers, Newcastle Eagles, Leicester Riders. I don't know if they ever do or have. I don't I I think.
2: I can't. I'm just thinking now. I can't say I've ever seen that advertised because you
1: know, because that you think they would, yeah, yeah. Newcastle and Leicester they own their venues, they own their gyms, So that puts them in a really privileged but I mean, obviously, they've earned it, but a really great position. They own their venue, they have that revenue. Like Newcastle, they have basketball going on in that place constantly. They've got central venue leagues for the kids and for, for young or you know, like like you were saying about your, your mates on a Tuesday night playing in this great venue, and then they've got the GB revenue because they've hosted a lot of GB games lately as well, which is awesome for them. Why aren't we seeing men then women, or women then men? Personally, so my my exposure to women's basketball in this country came about pretty late. It was when I was covering my first BBL playoff final, and before it was the WBBL game, and it was awesome. It was, so, it was the best game that day. And every single final I attended for a number of years, the women's game, always better than the men's. Always way more exciting, way more competitive. I was like, why aren't we raving about this? Which is why me and Kaz you know, do what we do. But I want to see a women's game go on last. I want that to be the main event. Pack it in during the men. Get them out there. Have all the things go off. Suit the floor. Women out. Quick as you can. Keep as many people as you can. Keep eyes on the product. Because if they get an opportunity, you kind of love it.
0: Yeah, I I'm, I'm kind of hoping that that's what's going to happen with this double header where they they're swapping it. Mind you though, back in the day because originally the Flames and the Kings were owned by the same ownership some time back. The Flames were on first and you'd get big crowds for them because they were an awesome team and they were just playing spectacularly and you know, quite often you'd hear comments that they should be the main game over the men, which was a common thing you'd hear at the time. It's also got a have something to do with the fact that people have to see that great performance, like you did. You know, I remember when we went, when I first got our season tickets for the Kings, we went in early to see the Flames, and I was like, This is good. I want to keep coming back to watch them play because they're really good. It's great basketball. It's about that education, but also just the exposure. Again, we get back to this whole media thing where the media just seemed to ignore it. Again, I don't understand why. Because we get into that situation, what is really a top flight product and a top flight sport with great athletes just seems to go uh, under the radar screen for so many people.
2: I mean, in, in Manchester, we have, for the team we have this year, there's a, an Olympian, there's a Commonwealth silver medalist. Last year, I think we had th- three, four Commonwealth silver medalists, one Olympian, players that play for GB that have represented the country. And it's on. I try and shout this out to people. It's on your doorstep. You can watch the top players in basketball in this country on your doorstep in this league every weekend. Like the London team the Darren commentates takes, women's team, they are stacked, aren't they, at the oh, moment? Yeah. They've, they've put together yeah. a super team that can compete in, in Euro Cup. And why aren't people, obviously we are, but why aren't people shouting about these players and their achievements and, and what they've done? Because it's fantastic what they've done. It's just not seen. outside the community.
3: And it sounds like uh, what Daz was describing before about the two-hour delay or break between the men and women's game at London, it sounds like a lot of missed opportunity for a development of club culture and almost like a cross-exposure of the women's team playing after the men's team so the men's team can watch some of the women's team and then you build that camaraderie between the two top professional teams and you have, like, start to develop a bit of a club identity and culture and it sounds like with the break in between it has the potential to get lost
1: what I will say to that is players respect it you talk to men players you talk to women's players they go to each other's games they watch you know when they can if they're in the same city if they're in the same country if they've got back-to-backs they will go watch in fairness so I think that's great and you know I commentate Anglia Ruskin it's a small venue I call it the bunker for a reason you know it's we're subterranean. We've got no people. <laughs> We've got a handful of people in there. But a lot of the men's players will come and watch the women play and vice versa. And it's, it has that culture. Now it's about translating to fans. And Let's look at football in this country or soccer. There's none of that. You know, I talked to a bloke in my day job. I'm like, oh, I'm not an Arsenal fan. I just like to make that abundantly clear. Sports team in Argentina. Why wouldn't that? But it was like, Arsenal, oh, you see the Arsenal result last night. Oh, I didn't play last night. Well, yeah, you did. Your women played. They got smashed 4-0 by Barcelona, but you know, they played at, at your home stadium. Are you an Arsenal fan or are you an Arsenal men's fan? And it's that for me with supporters, not to be antagonistic about it, but that's for me with supporters. It's like, are you a Manchester United fan or are you a Man United men's fan? In which case, just say, oh, I really support the men. Whoa, have you seen the women? They're really good. they got Katie Zellum. She plays for England. You know? Those sorts of things. And we want to have those conversations with basketball because we've got a number of teams and like the three of the best men's team in the country directly link with a women's program. Build on that.
0: Make more of that. It's kind of interesting because you mentioned that, especially bringing up Arsenal. Uh, Back in our first series, we spoke to one of the the ex-Sydney players, Vanessa Panousis, who was playing Green Grease at the time. And the athletic club that she played for had men's basketball women's basketball men's and women's soccer and a whole bunch of other sports and one of the questions I asked her is well does being part of this larger club does it translate to bringing fans who are club supporters to the game rather than just the women's basketball supporters we play to packed houses every game so there's obviously something to that and how do you manage to translate that to building that team identity around an athletic team to be able to make sure that the fans come for one and stay for the other. It just, I don't get it. This is
1: something that I've been wrestling with for years about sporting clubs and sporting societies. We don't have that in the UK really, which I don't really understand. So talk about Greece. I, again, I mentioned it, I support a football team in Argentina. Why? doesn't really matter. But they've got a basketball team. So I support that basketball team. If somebody says, "Who do you support?" I say, "I support Arsenal Club there, Schneider. we We've also got a women's football team. I was lucky enough to interview their captain. You know, so that's the football team I support. You know, so that's something a culture that can be built up. There's only one team in this country that I can think of that's doing that, and it's Bristol with Bristol Sports. So they're one of their football teams uh, must be Bristol City, who are the best football team in Bristol. They play in the Championship, so second tier. The men's rugby club, the women's rugby club, and the basketball clubs, men, women, juniors, they're all under one umbrella organisation of Bristol Sport, which is great. It means that they're able to share resources, share venues, share media people, share ideas, share money. And for the fans, and I don't know how well it's worked. I know that the men, they pack out their gym. It's a small venue, but it gets lively in there. It's a fantastic place to watch a game. Women's, I don't think it packs it out so much. But that looks to me like a stepping stone because if you buy a ticket for the men's football, it's like, oh, if you've got a ticket for that, get a basketball for way cheaper if you're able to buy a ticket because it's always a sellout. But anything like that, teams joining together. Why Manchester for me? Why doesn't the Manchester, one of the men's teams in Manchester, the women's team in Manchester, the ice hockey team in Manchester, why aren't they together working together as minority sports? I'm trying to build something a little bit more. Build that community, build that fan base. That are you a Mystics fan? No, I'm a Manchester basketball fan. Of the do, 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 do.
0: yeah, and you see, I think that sort of approach, particularly in some of the regional areas. I mean, like say Jacinta up on the Central Coast where you are, the trying to merge uh, sports like basketball with rugby league, but you know. It's like get all those sports to be able to work together to be able to try and promote themselves amongst the community as, you know, we are Central Coast sports. Maybe that sort of approach would be able to work towards bringing more, more eyeballs to the second-tier sports, let's face it. I mean, in Australia, it's rugby league, AFL, cricket, rugby, then everybody else pretty much to be able to try and get eyeballs on the sports that just aren't getting those those views. And like you said, Daz, being able to get, you know, coordinated marketing, coordinated advertising, coordinated media coverage, then that will all help to try and build up and get the audience in. I think that's probably a better model when you're working as a second-tier sport rather than trying to, you know, use that NBA structure, which is great if you're a primetime sport In the U.S., you've got your NBA, you've got your NFL, you've got baseball, and then after that, you know, hockey. That ownership structure seems to work in the U.S. I don't know, for me, it doesn't seem to translate as well to other countries.
1: I don't even know how well it works in the U.S. I should have mentioned, of course, Gloucester as well. So apologies, Jay Marriott. Uh, Gloucester City, Queens, and Kings, that are two basketball teams. They're also linked to their football club. So they are working together. Gloucester's football club is way down the order. In terms of the ownership, I, I completely agree. Like The the one rich guy at the top with these franchises, we have a franchise system. It, it works on a district area. It seems to work, but the links need to be made, like you say.
2: For me, I don't know if you agree, Darren, but something that I think would help with the links and that kind of push is I think we should have an American-style commissioner of the league. I think there should be someone in charge of the league that is kind of accountable and says, this is the direction that we're going to go in and kind of is that person that then brings everything together with a, a roadmap as to what they want to do. Where, where does the league want to be in five, 10, 15 years? I know not everyone's a fan of that, but I think that that is something that would really help. I know the BBL are looking at that, aren't they? With the, they've just had a an injection of cash as well at the moment. and I think they've said they're looking at a commissioner style role. So. I don't know if that'll filter down into the WBBL once that's established.
1: Yeah, we've kind of had that, but kind of not in recent years. So try it. Why not?
3: And Kaz, coming from Manchester, I mean, Manchester United putting Manchester on the sporting map, I suppose. It sounds like based on what based on what Dad said as well, you're competing with a lot of different other sports in Manchester too. So other than the obvious Manchester United, Manchester City, franchises in Manchester what are the other big sports happening in your city that uh, the Mystics need to compete with?
2: Yeah so, so actually just funnily enough the Manchester United football team actually did have a basketball team in the 80s and they were called the Manchester United Basketball Club and the Mystic's current coach, Jeff Jones, used to play for them. So there was a connection at one point. But we've got the Manchester Storm, the ice hockey, which does really, really well. They sell out or close to a lot of their games. They're kind of out of out of the city centre uh, in Alteringham. They do a, do a lot. And again, like I said, we've got the... I think it's the Manchester Thunder is the netball team, obviously coming up against them as well but yeah there's always a lot going on in Manchester sporting wise we've got rugby uh, in Salford just down the road as well to me it can it's so different as well Is basketball it's such a different sport that whilst it's competing for eyeballs and attention it's so different that you can love your ice hockey and then go to the basketball game the next day as well and it's just tapping into that and I think that you get a lot of crossover sometimes with ice hockey and basketball here and in Sheffield. But people just don't know about it. And when they know about it, they sort of start to go to both. And it's just that initial tell people about it. People don't know about it. And it's it's incredibly frustrating.
3: Sounds like the start of an underground partnership that you can start between the (laughs) two, like what Paul was talking about before that we can do on the coast.
0: One of the other things that I feel gets in the way, and strangely it shouldn't, is the marketing people who should be out Pushing and promoting hard, in some instances, actually act as gatekeepers and make it harder. Like a a basketball club here, you get in contact with marketing, and they just sort of go, "Yep, sure, we'll get back to you on that." And then it's crickets. You don't hear anything. You got to constantly be doing the chasing. At which point, you kind of go, "Yeah, you know what? There's all these other people that are more than happy to talk." Is that an issue that you guys find as well, or not so much in the UK?
1: I mean, Kaz <laughs> sources most of the people that we speak to, so I'm not entirely sure the, the the ways she goes about it. But I've not found that to be a major issue, but typically I just go direct to you know the person, an individual at the club that I know or been put in touch with rather than find out who their marketing person is. I'll try and find out who their head coach is or, yeah. or a player or, or something to that effect. Uh, I'm not too sure of your experience, Kaz. Yeah,
2: I t- like you say, I tend to just cut out in the middleman go straight to a player and, and, or a coach and speak to someone. But I think maybe the... I don't want this to sound like a criticism because I know what teams are under, the, the pressure they're up against and things, but I think some of the games, some of the um, the achievements could be marketed and pushed a bit better. The London Lions, so they're playing in Cup this season, they had a an amazing one-point win against Borges just before Christmas, which is, I don't know, to my mind and what people have be saying... That's the, the most historic, greatest British women's basketball win ever in the history. Bourges were ranked first. London were 32. Yeah, it's a two-leg aggregate, but what an amazing achievement. For me, I want the league and the club to be shouting about that, promoting it constantly, every hour before the game. Afterwards, I want to see it on BBC. I want to see it in the local papers. I want that to be acknowledgement of the, this achievement and then get people interested for the next leg and do it like that and I think sometimes that's where it falls down that kind of marketing to it because it's been gifted to you there London have done this ridiculous thing that nobody like Joe Edom said afterwards nobody expected them to do that nobody expected it and it's the perfect underdog story isn't it and everybody loves an underdog story sell it absolutely sell it to people and it it just doesn't seem to be <laughs>
3: How did London qualify to play in the Euro Cup? Is it a matter of just saying, hey, we want to play? Or did they have to win the WBBL Premiership last year? Or how does that work?
1: Yeah, they won the WBBL and then they applied to play in the Euro Cup. They had to play a qualifier against uh, Gran Canaria. And even that was looking like, can they beat Gran Canaria? Because, you know, Spain, Gran Canaria, real deal. Oh, yeah. Wiped the floor with them at home. Lost, but not so bad away. And boom, they're into Euro Cup.
3: And the Alliance women's team, are ten and zero at the moment. Uh, so having that in their story, making the Euro Cup with that historic win, it sounds like a really, really good heroic story that could be told. Whether it be marketing purposes or just a heroic story that we need right now in the pandemic.
1: And, and yeah, of the- I mean, oh well.
2: But I was just gonna say that, and Joe Warner, who is an absolute GB legend, absolute amazing player. So she now plays for London. She originally played for Bush when she played in Europe. And did she win Euro League or Euro Cup, Darren? Was it
1: I have it as Euro Cup, but I'm told Euro League, but Oh, so she's won a trophy with She's Borg. won European competitions with them.
2: With Bush. And now she's with London and then she's gone back and beaten her old team. And like she was the absolute star of that game. And that that in itself is just a cool little story as well.
0: There's a couple of interesting things there, which you just triggered for me. How does the UK league work in terms of imports coming in? Do you have a lot of imports coming in? Where are they coming from?
3: Well, even if an English player plays for a European team, are they still considered an import? Because for the WNBL, we have a lot of New Zealand players playing in our league. I don't think they're considered an import. They're just kind of considered as a local player. (sighs) With Brexit? Oh, gosh. Uh, Don't tell me Brexit influenced basketball (laughs) as well.
1: Import rules, I believe, have changed. Wow. There is carryover for Europeans. So basically, as I understood it, you could essentially have Europeans were treated as non-foreign and you had a limit on American imports, essentially. I believe that's now changed. And European players are basically considered your import players. I could... Be getting that wrong, but that is how I understand it to operate. We are not a massively import heavy league in the WBBL. I would say, Kaz, there are limits on how many imports, though the most dominant players in our league history have typically been imports. Ashley Arlen, uh, otherwise known as Ashley Harris, she is an American. She's now playing for Vittor Bigden in Sweden. She is so dominant. Played in the league two years. He's now playing her trade elsewhere. Kat Kerr, American, has been dominant. Um, Sarah Tawane, I hope I've said her name correctly, came in for one year, dominant American. You know, a lot of stars. But this year, the stars, British. Jolie de morning Zaini Stewart, Holly Winterburn. Yes, they all play for the Lions. No, I'm not biased. But they are <laughs> you know, three of the real star main events of this league season. Also, Kennedy Lennon, you know, dual passport. Kaz, I got carried away.
2: No, And it's interesting when you look at some of the teams, because at the moment, so the Mystics this season, they only have um, they have one American in Erica Williams uh, from California. And we have Anne Shea, who's from uh, Stockholm, uh, but she's been playing WNBL Division One uh, for London the last few years. But then this year, I've spoken to a couple of players on the team that say... Recruitment just generally in the league has been difficult this year, just with the COVID and restrictions, players not always knowing what was going to go on. So it's been a bit harder to get imports in this year. I think we did quite well last year as a league, didn't we? From memory, we had a few, it feels like we had a few more last year than this year, Just or maybe Americans last year than, than this year. But I guess that as well, that was because uh, Brexit wasn't, I guess, finalised as we were, we were doing. So it didn't have the impact last year at the start of the season
1: yeah I don't remember there being a massive drop off in Americans coming over last season
0: I agree with you okay now understanding we've got a time difference it's starting to get late for you guys and this has been really good I think we could keep going for hours on this because it's all sorts of stuff that I still want to talk about but there are two things that I really want to touch on before we do let you guys get to sleep the first thing is I'm really curious, while I was doing a bit of reading up on the WBBL, you've got the WBBL Championship, the Trophy, and the Cup. Can you give us a rundown on how all that operates?
1: Um, and of course, you've got the playoffs. Don't forget the playoffs now.
0: Oh, sorry. I've missed one more then.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so the BBL Championship, that is the traditional league season. Everybody plays each other home and away. And at the end, uh, a league champion is crowned. And the top eight teams go into a playoffs. It's single game elimination. So we don't have series. We don't have head-to-heads. We just have play one game. Home team plays at home. And we play to a final. And that is at the 0-2 in London in Wembley. The Cup operates as a single game elimination. There are no additional teams in the Cup, are there?
2: No, no. Not for the women. It's the same, yeah.
1: So again, one team will probably get a bye. And then it will... Go through bracketed tournament right until the end, and the final for the cup is in Birmingham at the end of January. And the trophy, or uh, well, Kaz, you can explain the trophy a bit better than me.
2: Well, the trophy is just the same as well, isn't it? Because so in the men's league, the trophy would incorporate uh, a few teams from the lower leagues, whereas the trophy for the women's. Competition doesn't, so it's just essentially another piece of silverware that they can win. But the trophy was the original cup competition. The cup competition started a couple of years after the league was was started. But we actually call it the Betty Cadona Trophy after Betty Cadona, who was uh, the founder of the Sheffield Hatters um, and does like amazing work for the Hatters and just women's basketball in this country. Um, so yeah, essentially we've got two cup trophy competitions that are pretty similar.
1: I did make a mistake. Um, the cup this year had a slightly different format. It had groups, so there were three groups of three, one group of four, and then the group winners. So they were held at the start of the season as like a kickoff and precursor to the season. Uh, there was a quarterfinal, semi-final, and final based out of that. My apologies.
0: Okay, now and then
1: on top
2: of that we have the the playoffs. So at the end of the season, when the league's finished, the top eight teams go into a playoff. And Darren said, "Win the, the playoffs."
0: Okay. There's an awful lot of sort of sub tournaments in effect under the the WBBL umbrella. Out of that, here's my next question, and I know we talked about this when we spoke last week. We touched on it. How come we're not seeing GB stepping up at a World Cup and Olympic tournaments, you know, more regularly? Given there's obviously a lot of talent in the country, and you know, added to that. How do we get that traditional rivalry, Australia-UK, happening in basketball?
1: We need our domestic league to be stronger. That's first and foremost. If we get to a stage domestically, Kaz, tell me if I'm wrong, where Holly Winterburn stays and plays the bulk of her career here, it needs to be conducive to a player like Holly Winterburn, who is like the next big thing in British women's basketball. I mean, she's already there, but... she went to Oregon. She scored a three against Diana Tarassi playing against Team USA. You know, this is the level we're talking about. And she's come back essentially because of the pandemic, really. If we're able to retain the talent, the top talent in this country, building such a competitive league in that regard, that is going to certainly help. So for me, that is a large part of where it comes from. But I think, you know, for a GB point of view, we were that close. That close. Sorry. Very close. I'm putting my fingers very close together. I realise this is audio. <laughs> Okay, Okay, It came down to two points in a single game to make the Olympics. The problem is that was like the golden generation's use a horrible, overplayed football word, And now it's a case of we're in a rebuild, but if it reset, we didn't make the last Eurobasket, which is kind of understandable because you come that close to World Cup qualification. And now it's the case of restarting, looking at the next crop the next generation coming through so ultimately it boils down to domestic competitiveness and how strong our youth system is and our youth teams
2: I I think we're in a transition period aren't we because like you said Darren we were a basket away from the Olympics and a lot of the players that were playing on that team have played together for so long and they've achieved so much and it's now kind of this handover to players like Holly Winterburn to Shanice Beckford Norton um, and the younger players that are are coming in and changing a little bit how they've played. So Shanice not and she represented um, GB at the three-on-three tournaments earlier this year as well, and she's playing for GB. She is just fast. She can just get to the basket. The way she moves and gets to the basket is incredible. And the the team have never really had a player like that before that can do what she does. So it's getting used to how, how to best use her, how it all fits together, and a lot of the younger players that haven't played together and kind of taking that the torch being passed down. Um, so I think in a, where are we, Paris, in LA, I'm going to say the LA Olympics, I think we can we can get there, but it's, it's just this transitional period that hopefully we can keep these people together. And like Darren says, the strength of the league, keep these players in the league, because it shows with London having five players that play together when they play for GB, you're basically just playing with the team that you play in week in, week out with. A lot of times GB have come together and played and said, you know, we've had a week of practice because they don't have the summer camps and they they see each other two, three times a year and they just don't have the um, availability to do that like some other countries do. It's such a benefit for us to have five players playing on one of the domestic teams that are then playing for GB.
0: Yeah. Like for me, I'm really surprised that we haven't seen UK in, in international competition as much as I think we should, you know, learning what we've learnt tonight. But for me, the other part to this is that, you know, I mean, one of the great drivers of cricket is that and I'm sorry to bring that the cricket, right? But the ashes is one oh, <laughs> oh, brutal. the ashes, it's one of those great drivers of competition. It's like, you know, Australia and New Zealand in the rugby. You need those rivalries, those great rivalries to really get people to stand up and pay attention. How do you build a rivalry, such a natural lot rivalry, from basically something that doesn't exist at the moment and should? How do you do that?
1: Who, who are Great Britain's basketball rivals? Do well, we, on an international level, have anybody that we're like, oh, I want to beat you?
2: I, I can't think of any, you know, any kind of repeat games that I've seen because I don't feel like we see the same teams often.
1: with that, and that's and that's where, yeah, and that's where those rivalries stem from, doesn't it? Yeah. That's where they come from. You see each other at a World Cup, you see each other at Eurobasket, and so on and so forth. So I don't think, I don't know. We'll ask TV players that we know, but who do you consider, you know, real rivals? Maybe Greece? I think that's more with the men than the women. But maybe a country like Greece, but they, yeah, maybe them. But honestly, I don't know because we're not there enough, and I think that's where those rivalries come. That's where the history comes from. You know, New Zealand, Australia. Let's talk rugby union. You play each other every single year in the um, Four Nations. So how would you call it? The championship? The rugby championship? Yeah, and we
0: don't. We don't. We like to not talk about that too much at the moment <laughs> either.
3: Well, we also have <laughs> the you- Lettice Low Cup too. Oh, they, yeah, exactly. that's what i'm talking
0: about let's just let's just leave that one alone
1: <laughs> so i'd love that's to the see shame something. paul take the shame <laughs> <laughs> i'd love to see it all boils down to money and, and funding and and that's i don't feel like we've spoken about that much which that's like the the topic the conversation with british sport and, and british basketball why are we good at netball we're good at netball because we're good at netball and what does that mean it gets funded and so we stay good in netball why are we good at cycling it's because we're good at cycling we can win cycling money rowing give it that money they might struggle because they came fourth a lot in the last Olympics, so that's a real worry for the rowing heads out there it's about the money and we're a team sport beautiful sport but can we win it at an international level? Can we get the funding that is going to help to support our national teams? Why aren't we playing some sort of wild tri-nation tournament with Australia, New Zealand, GB, basketball, every other off-season? Why aren't these things able to happen? I'd wager that money would be a part of it. we talked
3: about before how I think maybe it was even a conversation Paul and I had off-air one day about it just makes no sense that – if we have so much talent in one sport but they need more money and resources but we keep giving the money to the teams that are already doing well. Like it's like that conversation about equity really, isn't it?
2: So we, we had a player last year, Darren, you'll have to remind me of her name. She played for Leicester but she also played for the Loughborough uh, netball team and she would have oh, to... um Ella Clark. Yes, yes. Yeah, she's she would... Dan
1: Clark's sister and Mark Clark's oh, Clark, uh, daughter. Yeah.
2: So she, she would be playing for the WBBL team, but then she would also have her netball team to play as well. So obviously if there was a clash, she's going to take the netball team game because I imagine she was paid <laughs> decently and that was always going to take precedent. And she was a yeah. phenomenal player, wasn't she? But we've lost that phenomenal player to netball because it's better supported, better funded, and she could probably have a better career in netball at the moment. And netball is always going to be the priority there because it's supported like that, which is a waste if for basketball, not for netball.
0: Yeah, we got the same problem here. Jacinta, how many have we got going, you know, dual coding with AFLW?
3: Oh, gosh, we've got a lot now, yeah. Yeah, so AF, I'm not sure, Kaz and Daz, if you're aware, so our Aussie rules professional league is AFL, and in the last few years we now have AFLW, which is a professional women's league. And I think especially... Yeah, <laughs> there you right. go. The talk
1: is <laughs> Haley Miller. She's got the captaincy. She's oh, it's Frio's time. We were robbed of our flag. <laughs> COVID robbed us of our flag. Let's go. Haley Miller's gonna lead us to glory.
3: You have. Uh, you we're might have a go- few of our listeners
1: um, debate you on that, does? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I
3: was
1: we'll getting leave- up at five o'clock in the morning to watch those games. Like nobody was stopping us. In 20, well, 20.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I completely
1: did so, you there? But.
0: No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think the only answer I would have is that the only thing that could stop the Dockers that's AFLW season was COVID. It took a yeah. pandemic. They were on track for our undefeated season maybe. Um, but, yeah, we've got lots of, I mean, we've seen it a lot with our young guys. Like there's so many Australian juniors who would play in our emus, you know, junior Australian teams that would, look like they're on the pathway to playing the NBL and perhaps the Boomers and then they go to AFL um, and we're seeing the same trend now that AFLW is more accessible and supported uh, so we have quite a few female athletes who have played you know college ball and Australian juniors could easily play WNBL but have chosen to play AFLW and we've also got some players who are playing both so Tessa Levy, who plays for Bendigo Spirit, is actually playing both at the moment. Before, it used to work well where you could play one season of one and then go into the next season of the other, but COVID and, you know, having to modify schedules means that there's a bit more of a crossover. So similar situation where it sounds like, you know, the the AFL teams and the clubs are bigger and better supported and the funding and resources i mean we may as, just well lose more players to the afl and aflw in a similar way you were describing Kaz, with netball but what yes. you were saying before das about it all comes down to money the perfect example was when we interviewed coach liz mills who does the kenyan men's national team and i asked why angola have been so good at basketball for so long in the afro basketball because when else have we, do we hear about angola in the news? Yeah other than men's basketball. And she yeah. essentially said that they had a, a president for a really, really long time who really liked basketball and just put money into it. And then they do- they've they dominated the Afro Basketball League for at least a decade. So, yeah. I mean, the- it's a simple equation, right?
1: Yeah, it's well-supported. Shout out to Nate Lucas, who was the, the physio for them for a World Cup couple of 2019. Yeah, the money, the support, the organisation, they all seem to be there for Angolan basketball that's what it needs it needs money and support like the horror stories that you hear but i mean it's pretty poor really what you've heard historically that gb men and women's players have had to do in terms of funding and and, and nutrition and travel and you know coaches and and assistants and physios not getting paid and voluntary and goodwill and you know having gb on the on the resume and all these things it's it's just poor historically and it would be great to see that changing and that what needs to change is more of that funding to come in. both government funding, which it's the second largest participation sport. you look at where it is really popular Manchester big C, London, big C, Birmingham, Sheffield, Bristol top 10 C in the country. These are where basketball thrives. pump money into it, bolster outside investment and that's that's what I don't and and Paul, you alluded to this from early. I don't see the huge name sponsors involved in British basketball. And I don't understand why. Uh, We had Benacos come on board as a a BBL and WBBL sponsor. They're like a makeup brand, I think. I'd not heard of them with no disrespect to Benacos. Like, it's great that they're supporting the league. but And and now every time I see them, I'm like, oh, WBBL. I'm not going to invest in their products because it doesn't fit my needs. But, you know, other brands are available. That I do see a invest link to the league, I will be drawn towards because I want to support the league because I know that they support the league. So it's you know big investment from external. Why not? Why not? Yeah. it? and I don't know. I can't answer that question.
0: Yeah, it's it. I mean, this, for us here in Australia, it's, it's a couple of things around it. But to that point about the sponsorship, there was some research that was done by a group called True North. Uh, we had them on the podcast in series two, and one of the things that they said was that the engagement rate of fans to sponsors particularly of women's sports both men and women is significantly higher than for men's sports but also then that means that there's a real there's a real economic advantage to getting involved with the second tier sports because your cost of entry is significantly lower than for the major sports and because you get that really strong connection with the fan base, that's going to translate to additional sales. Whereas if you're sponsoring rugby league or premier league, you're in for a colossal amount of money. And while you're getting lots and lots of eyeballs seeing your brand, they're seeing every other brand. And is that actually converting to additional sales or additional revenue? Are you getting a return on your your sponsorship dollar? And the other part to this is in terms of, you know, how funding is managed. That stupid model, which is basically let's go fund the sports that are successful and we won't fund the unsuccessful sports until they get successful and then we'll throw money at them. No, the successful sports have already got money coming their way. What you want to do is if you want to really build that cross sectional sport base, you've got to put money towards those teams that need it to be able to grow. And okay, yeah, you might have to stratify it and say, okay, here's our top teams, we're going to give them a little bit to. Here's that second tier of sports, however you judge them. We're going to throw more money at them so that they can get further up the ladder. Out of whatever bucket of money we've got left, let's look at whatever sports are left and let's start throwing money at them so that we can get those up as well, Uh, rather than, you know, what's basically a very, it's a Darwinian economic model, which is if you get to be good on your own, then we'll give you money. But before that, well, you're on your own.
1: I understand it to an extent, to degree of why they do it. I don't agree with it. I know why they do it. They do it because well, if we've been seen to be good at a thing, we continue to be good at the thing. We win the thing, and that makes GB look mint. Look at our cycle. Look at look at the <laughs> Olympic medal table. Look at the league table. How exciting! Wonderful. How good it is for all of these people. It's just not for me the right way to go about it at all. But now I'm starting to get a bit ranty and then.
0: Yeah, no, no. Look, we could rant on this one for another half hour easily. Guys, I realise it is getting very late for you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We definitely want to be checking back in on what's happening with the WBBL with you guys. When does the season finish?
2: April the 20-something.
0: <laughs> okay, that's cool. So I suppose what we should try and do is check in with you guys for a much shorter podcast where we just sort of get a feel for what's happening in the WBBL with teams ladders performances of teams and so on so that we can start maybe getting a little bit more of the good word out here in Australia and uh, so we can hear what's happening and who knows maybe some of our teams will poach some of your players
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean that sounds really good and like it is the second half of the season things start to, to heat up we've got the unbeaten lions and the unbeaten seven oaks Suns that first weekend back so we've got a bit of a top of the table clash there as well so definitely well, sounds
0: good kaz and Daz, thanks so much for your time really appreciate it it's been really interesting a lot of fun learned a lot i can't wait to catch up with you guys again and see what's happening in wbbl land
2: it's, it's been great thank you for having us
0: no worries yeah
1: massive thank you and uh we'll uh We'll put the feelers out and get, see if we can't repay the favour, get you on the Calendash Show and introduce our listeners to the goings-on in Australia.
0: No worries. Okay, guys, thanks for your time. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.